All right. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, we will be back in chapter 9. We are steadily working our way both through this book and through this chapter. We did warn you guys to begin with in this chapter that we would break it up several different sermons, and we are now in our third sermon here in Acts, and I anticipate we will have, or Acts 9, and I anticipate we will have one more before we finish it. I'm not going to finish it today. We'll be covering verses 20 through 31 this morning. Let's begin by reading those verses. Actually, let's begin by starting in verse 19. And taking food, he was strengthened, speaking of Paul. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this... Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When the many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus." So we went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed among, against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied." The title of my sermon this morning is The Irony of Saul. The Irony of Saul. I think as we, we move through this, you'll understand the purpose for that title or the reasoning for that title. But Brian ended, the reason I began in verse 19 is because Brian ended last week there in verse 19. And, and there in verse 19, you saw where Luke tells us that Saul spent several days with the disciples there in Damascus after he had been visited by Ananias and his eyesight had been given back to him. Then in verse 20, Paul did not wait, as we see here, he, as he spent some days there with the disciples, and we're told immediately he didn't wait to go about the business of Jesus, right? He immediately went to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. It just had me thinking as, as I read that, just right off the bat, as far as how we think of that today and, and apply that today to us, you know, many Christians begin on, on fire for Jesus, right? You're first, you're saved first, you you notice, know the change, obviously, the, the new person that you are, what Jesus has done for you, and, and, and you just begin kind of on fire for Jesus. The conversion is so new and, and so amazing, and, and you know, that, that new convert just cannot wait to tell others about what happened to them, about Jesus and what He's done for them. They want others to know what happened. They want others to know that God can do that for them as well. And it's a beautiful thing. That is a wonderful, beautiful thing that we see in, in, in many new converts. Unfortunately, over time, that, that fire can simmer down for some. For really all of us at times, we can let, let the, the, the drain of life kind of let that fire simmer some and, or simmer down some and, 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 
it can become more of a warm coal, really, than that burning fire that was there to begin with. But I don't know that we ever see that being the case for Saul, right? He was converted, he was restored, and then immediately he proclaimed the gospel with zeal and urgency. He then spent the rest of his remaining life proclaiming that truth to as many people that could hear him and that would hear him. Saul is just a great example. Paul is just a great example in his life, his ministry, his zeal for the Lord and his fire that continue to just burn over and over for us. And, and I pray that we look to him and continue to look to him as a great example for us. But, but notice the message of Saul here as well. It says that he, he's proclaiming in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? Not that he was, not that he will be, he is. The obvious implication here is, is that he's saying Jesus is not dead, right? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is, in fact, very much alive. Now, can you imagine the shock in those who might have known Saul just a few days prior to this? I mean, the shock is he stands and he, he delivers this, this message, this same Saul who had come to Damascus with letters from the high priest so that he could go into these same synagogues to find men and women who claim that Jesus was alive and been claiming that and arrest them for lying and for blasphemy. You realize the abrupt change that had to have happened to Saul for this to happen, for him to now proclaim that message. Either he would have been crazy, certifiably crazy, to have had such a drastic change happen so quickly or he would have had to have been a new man, right? In verse 21, we read that all who heard him were amazed. They knew who he was. They knew this was the man who had caused so much persecution for the believers there in Jerusalem. And it seems that they, they knew what his purpose was for coming to Damascus. Now, th there's no reason to think that Saul had actually taken these letters to the synagogues, which he had carried with him uh, from Jerusalem after he had gone blind and had been uh, laid up blind for a few days with the, uh, there in the, the house before Ananias came, and then uh, as he went to the disciples, there's no reason to believe that these letters were actually delivered by Saul. Maybe word had spread to those in Damascus of Saul's trip. Most likely, though, the men who had come with him to Damascus had taken these letters to the synagogues themselves while Saul lay blind, and it became known among the Jews there why he had come, why Saul was there in Damascus. And these Jews had probably been waiting for Saul to recover and then to get to the synagogue to execute these letters on the authority of the high priest. You can imagine, if you will, that that first day that Saul had recovered, and then he goes into the synagogue there in Damascus after his conversion. It was likely the first time, again, that he'd made such a public appearance after entering into the city. It's possible that some word of his conversion had spread, but based on our passage, it seems that most of the Jews there still, they still thought that Saul was, was, had a purpose of executing these letters. And he had come, and still his purpose was to destroy the way. As he went into the synagogue, his presence would have commanded a certain respect. Here he was, the right hand of the Sanhedrin, or the high priest, the man who had studied under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. At some point, Saul likely would have been asked, or he would have asked for Scripture, and would have stood up to read that Scripture for all to hear there in the synagogue. 
I don't want to assume too much and, and read into what's not here, but it's hard not to imagine that Saul would have chosen uh, some passages or a passage on, on the Messiah and how Jesus would have fulfilled that passage. But as he's reading that, you can imagine all eyes on Saul. Most or all in the synagogue, synagogue again, probably would have, had, would have been anticipating as he finished this, a sharp denunciation of this, this new sect which had arisen this heretical group, as he would have, they assumed, proclaimed it to be, and then he would have gone on to command them, to arrest them. But instead, Saul began preaching Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus as the Christ. Proving from the Old Testament His claim of deity and kingship. No wonder the shock and confusion, right? I mean, no wonder their reaction to him is, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and of those who called upon this name? But by God's grace and mercy, this was in fact the same man, right? But not the same man either. He was a new creature. Having been given a heart of flesh and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, He now had a desire to follow Jesus, the one unique, divine Son of God. We read Saul continued to witness and and to debate or reason with those in the synagogues there in Damascus. That's exactly what we found Stephen doing back in Jerusalem, right? We're told that he increased in strength here. The word for strength here is used in several other passages in the New Testament. It's used in Romans chapter 4, verse 20 to describe the strength of Abraham's faith. Paul used it in Ephesians 6 when he wrote to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might by putting on the whole armor of God. Paul again uses the same word in Philippians 4.13 when proclaiming that he could do all things through Christ which strengthened him. Certainly not a reference to his ability on the football field, right? But instead, it was speaking, Paul was speaking of how he could be content in Christ no matter his circumstances. He had the strength to do that, to be that. So the idea of growing stronger here is growing stronger in the things of God, growing stronger spiritually and in faith. And we see that in Paul. As he was strengthened in such a way, he was confounding the Jews here in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. The word for confounding here is the same word used back in Acts 2 when the people of Jerusalem were confounded by the disciples of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. Now remember, Saul was was learning and excelling prior to his conversion in the ways of Judaism amongst his peers under the tutelage again of one of the most respected rabbis in, in, in Judaism, Gamaliel. He was a very intelligent man, a very zealous man, It's not a stretch then, I think, to say that he knew the Old Testament as well as any man on earth alive at this point. From what I understand, the Greek word here for proving, it means to join or put together. So what we see here is this man now, Saul, now saved and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, he began to take these passages in the Old Testament which he knew so well, and he began to prove at every turn and in every way how they pointed to Jesus. Let us not throw the Old Testament away. It is extremely important for us. 
But Saul speaks to them and proves how Jesus fulfilled them in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he did so in such a way that Luke says he proved that Jesus was the Messiah. Proved to these Jews, despite how much and how strongly they disagreed with him. Saul was really a Christian apologist, right? He was an apologist as one who gives an argument or uh, in defense of something which is controversial. The, the resurrection of Jesus was certainly controversial then, certainly is now as well. But Paul was giving a defense as to the resurrection of Jesus and the Messiahship of, of Jesus. Again, do you see the irony in this, in this whole story, this whole passage really? I mean, it wasn't long ago that Saul was himself being confounded by the message of Jesus, probably as Stephen preached it and debated it in the synagogue prior to his death. Saul likely attended that synagogue regularly, as I've mentioned before, and Saul at that point was no different than these Jews in Damascus. But now he had become the Stephen to Damascus, right? The very thing he sought to stop and stamp out, he was now doing with great conviction and zeal. Then we read in verse 23 that when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. They had been unable to refute Saul and his witness of Jesus and arguments from the Old, Test, the Old Testament word that they claimed to believe, so they decided just to try and kill him, right? In exactly the same way, again, that Saul and the Hellenistic Jews did to Stephen in Jerusalem. The depraved heart of a man would rather kill truth than believe it, right? And that's what we see here. That's what we saw previously with Saul and Stephen. Now, as we get into verse 23 and we read, Now many days had passed. The Jews plotted to kill him. I want to take a moment to, to stop here and kind of touch on this for a moment. This, this time in Damascus that Paul had prior to his departure to Jerusalem is up for some debate among uh, people and have been, uh, has been up for debate among people for a while. Now, on several occasions, we know that when Paul wrote to the epistles, uh, to the churches, wrote the epistles to the churches years later, he, he wrote several times of many things that happened to him earlier in his, his life or his ministry, right? His, prior to his conversion, about his conversion, he did that very thing concerning his time here in Damascus. He wrote about it in Galatians 1 and he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians. His, his account of this time, this time in Damascus, is a, very much the same as Luke's is here in Acts, but there are a, a couple of differences. And as often many tend to do, people have taken these, these differences and they have tried to poke holes in the Word of God by claiming that they don't align with each other, right? So I wanted to take a quick look at the, them for a minute while we're here and, and, and just try to you know, work through them and explain them for just a moment. If you'll turn with me to the book of Galatians. If you go to chapter 1 with me. Let's begin reading in verse 13. We'll see Paul's description of this. He says in verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for, their, for the traditions of my fathers. 
But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And we'll stop there for right now. You see in these passages, pretty much the same account. Paul mentions this time in Damascus before he goes to Jerusalem, which we've read and we'll cover here in just a minute how he goes to Jerusalem. But Paul's account is slightly different here. He mentions something different. He mentions a period of time in which he went somewhere else. He mentions that he goes to Arabia. As we read there in Acts, Luke mentions nothing of of Arabia in his account, right? He just says that many days had passed. After that, a plot to kill Saul in Damascus was, was uncovered. But again, Paul says in Galatians that he spent three years in Arabia and Damascus before going to Jerusalem. So does this match up or or do these stories differ? Is there a reason for us to question these two stories and think that something different is going on here? Well, let's begin by the time here. Three years is, in fact, many days, right? I mean, there are many days in in three years. You've heard that saying many moons ago. I'm I'm sure it's a pretty common saying. That's a reference, obviously, to many days. But when that's said in, in our common Tongue, or when we, you know, we talk about that today, when that term is heard today, we often understand that as a, a long time, right? Many moons ago, a, a long time ago. So the same can be said for many days in this passage. There, there's no contradiction to the time there. Many days is, can be three years, and, and I believe it is three years here that Paul mentions here in Galatians. So why did Luke not mention Arabia if Saul went there before going to Jerusalem? Well, at that time, the time that Paul was there, Saul was there in Damascus. The northwest tip of Arabia was nearly touching Damascus. This fact will be more important for another reason in a moment, but from what I understand, Saul could have traveled actually back and forth between the city of Damascus and the wilderness of Arabia without much trouble had he wanted to. He very well could have done that during this period of time, during these three years. Or he could have just spent that three years exclusively in Arabia, which again, wasn't far from Damascus. Then returned after these many days to preach again in Damascus, where a plot was made soon to put him to death. Look, Luke here in Acts and Paul in Galatians... We're telling these accounts for different reasons, okay? I believe this to be the, the, the reason why we have a little different uh, facts here given to us. Luke is telling or giving this account of Saul in Damascus here in Acts to emphasize the truth for us of Saul's conversion, right? That's what he's, he's bringing home to us, that Saul's conversion was real and it was true and we're getting the story of that conversion by Luke pointing out the acceptance of Saul by the disciples of Jesus and by showing the persecution that Saul went through or was in danger of because of his bold witness of Jesus. That, that's what Saul or Luke is focusing on. And it's hard to find an external proof of conversion more compelling than the perseverance of a saint through persecution, right? I mean, that is a, a telltale sign of a, a true conversion. And, and I think, again, that's exactly what Luke is emphasizing in his account. Paul, on the other hand, in Galatians, is emphasizing his apostleship. He's emphasizing how he was not inferior to the other apostles, how he did not get his apostleship from these other twelve. So they have different points 
that they're making and reasons why they bring out a couple of different uh, a couple of different facts. Paul is saying, I went to Arabia in Galatians, I went to Arabia, and in Arabia I got teaching directly from Jesus, just as the other apostles did. I did not learn from the apostles the gospel. I, they did not teach me. I did not, again, did not receive my apostleship from them. I did directly from Jesus, and this is when it happened. Luke's not going through that because that's not his emphasis. That's not his point. So, back in our passage, we see that, Paul, that Saul, is, he's back in Damascus. He's confounded and frustrated and angered, likely, these Jews here. So much so that, that we are told that they plotted to kill him. This plot was uncovered, though. We don't know how. We aren't given the details. We just know it became known to Saul. And this would be the first of many plots or attempts to put Saul to death during his ministry because of his preaching of the gospel of Jesus. Luke then tells us that they were watching the gate day and night in order to kill him. And again, here's another place where People claim contradiction in, in the stories of Luke and Paul, how they don't match up. We see here in Acts that Luke states that the Jews plotted to kill Saul. He then says that they, as I just read, they kept a close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. So the only subject this could refer back to in this sentence, the only person or the group is the Jews, right? They plotted to kill him. These Jews plotted to kill him. And, and that makes perfect sense because Luke has just told us they plotted to kill him, so these Jews are watching and waiting for him, trying to catch him, trying to arrest him to carry out the, the execution of Saul. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul mentions the same plot to kill him in Damascus. In chapter 11, verse 32, Paul writes this, At Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So we've got in Acts, the Jews plotting and waiting and, and trying to find him. And then in 2 Corinthians, we've got this governor under King Eretus. Well, the governor under King Eretus would have been from a place called Nebatea, which was a prosperous and well-populated kingdom of Arabia just east of Damascus. It was ruled by this King Eretus. And just like Pilate was the governor of Jerusalem under, under the direction of Caesar, this man, this governor that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, was the governor of Damascus under the direction of King Eretus. So some people read these two accounts again, and they argue that Paul's story was that the governor of Damascus went to arrest him, or wanted him, and was watching him, and, and even maybe King Eretus himself sought to kill Saul, while Luke's story was that the Jews were seeking to do this and watching for him and waiting for him. And so, you know, this is some whole or some difference. But there's a very simple explanation here for the difference between Paul's account in 2 Corinthians and Luke's account here in Acts. Saul's preaching in Damascus over the course of three years... Or, uh, excuse me, Saul being in Damascus or in Arabia over the course of three years would have caused a lot of disturbance. We know that as soon as he began proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God, we just read it confounded the Jews, right? We also know that Paul continued to boldly debate and prove Jesus as the Messiah to the Jews there in Damascus. So we can safely understand that this had probably started to cause a lot of tension there in Damascus. Perhaps even chaos there with the Jews. Paul's preaching and ministry would do that in numerous places during his life, during his ministry, right? There would be uproar and chaos because of his message of Jesus, especially to the Jews. 
To the point in some of these accounts later in, in, uh, of, of Paul preaching, rulers in that area would as well get involved, right? They would begin to get involved because of this chaos or the disturbance. So most likely, what is going on here is in an effort to get rid of what he believed to be any disturbances in his city, the governor of Damascus had gotten with the Jews who obviously had an issue with Paul and what he was preaching. They plotted together to find, arrest, and kill Saul and work together to do that. So they're both watching, waiting, trying to find Saul. They're both working together with this plot to kill him. No contradiction here at all of either, in either account. We see that Saul's ministry... And I apologize for all the, the ins and outs of that. I just think, I think it's important sometimes when there's, there are heavily debated parts of, of Scripture to point those out and make sure we kind of have an understanding and walk through an explanation of that. But, but we see here in verse 25 that, that Saul's ministry had been effective where he, he had had disciples. He says he has disciples, people that followed his teachings. We don't know if these were the group of believers who were already in Damascus when Saul got there or, or if they were new converts or, or both. But these disciples, they helped him escape, as we see, by letting him down the wall in a basket. Now, if there was ever a man who had his share of persecution, it was Paul, right? I read or mentioned 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I mentioned the last verse there in verse 32 earlier, but there are verses prior to that, right? And in those verses prior to verse 32, Paul has written in those verses about the numerous ways in which he suffered or were perse- was persecuted after his conversion and during his missionary journeys. They were great and they were extensive. So I think it's fair to say that, that Saul, Paul, was not afraid of persecution. Or he didn't shy away from it, let me just put it that way. Yet here we see him escaping it. Right? He, he's trying to get away from this persecution that could come on him. I point that out to say that it is not a badge of super-Christianity to be persecuted. Okay, We don't need to seek persecution. Nor is it a sign of weakness to attempt to keep it from happening if possible. We saw that with the disciples there in Jerusalem as they fled persecution there and uh, went out into other areas. We see that with Paul here. We will see it again here in a moment. But what we don't see from Paul is him compromising the gospel message to escape persecution. We also don't see him shying away from it by giving up preaching and proclaiming the gospel message. How do we know that? Well, because in verse 26, immediately after escaping with his life in Damascus, he went straight back to Jerusalem, the place of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, and the Hellenistic Jews who had put Stephen to death and had, in a sense, been the catalyst for this heavy persecution for the church as they were the first group there of Jews to adamantly oppose that message of of Jesus, right? And seek to have the Sanhedrin put an end to it. The first thing that Saul does that we read here when he gets back to Jerusalem is he seeks out other believers. These same men and women, and think about this, Saul goes back to seek out these same men and women who he had been a sworn enemy to not so long ago. He now tries to find them and join them. We see that he attempted to join them, and, and the, 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 the verb of, of joining them is in the imperfect tense, which means it was, it was a repeated effort. It, it, he, wasn't, he didn't just do it once. He didn't just go out there and say, y'all help me find these guys, or can I, can I find the, the disciples of, of Jesus? No, he's con- repeatedly trying to find them, but his attempts continue to fail. It, it doesn't seem that 
he had an immediate success at all. Not because of hatred by these believers, but the text tells us they were afraid of him, right? I'm sure they believed at this point still that Saul was just trying to find another way to hunt them down. Arrest them pretend by pretending to believe that he was a Christian. He was one of them now. The easiest way to get in with them, right? And we can certainly understand that. We can understand why their thought process would be this way. Now, it says that all the disciples in Jerusalem were afraid of him, and they did not believe that he truly had been converted. It seems from this passage that the apostles were there in Jerusalem as well, and so I think that they would be easily included into this group of disciples who were afraid or did not believe that Saul had been converted. You could say how that this shows how harsh the persecution of Saul had been there in Jerusalem, right? I mean, if, if they were this concerned, even the apostles likely were this concerned and in, in, in disbelief of Saul's conversion. It seems that they hadn't even attempted to, to meet with Saul to this point or talk with him, despite knowing that he was there and, and was claiming conversion. But there was one man who did. We read here, whether it was out of courage or out of faith or out of compassion or all three, a man by the name of Barnabas took Saul at his word and he brought him in, we're told. Now, you know, the more we go through Acts, and I think we'll continue to see this with Barnabas, it's hard not to have a high respect for, for Barnabas. We first saw him back in, in the early part of Acts where he was among those selling, selling some of their possessions so that the, the poor in the church of Jerusalem would have enough, Right? Barnabas had sold some land, so it's possible he was a man of some means and some wealth. But he did not count that as something to keep. Instead, he, he thought more of his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and wanted them to be better and, and have more. We didn't see Barnabas mentioned again until this point, but it is pretty striking that out of all the believers in Jerusalem, again, apostles likely included, Barnabas was the only one who stepped forward to bring Paul in. We will later see Barnabas again as a close companion to Paul and some of his missionary journeys. Look, Barnabas was a great man of faith and compassion, even though his name is not normally mentioned as such when we go through the great hall of faith or the great men of faith in, in Scripture. But Barnabas is certainly one of those men. He's a great example for us of how to strive for church unity and reconciliation. So Barnabas here, he takes Saul to the apostles. We don't know where they were. There's nothing written in this passage to tell us where the apostles were, how long Saul had been trying to join the disciples or the apostles, or why Saul had not uh, found or met with the, uh, the apostles already. They certainly all seem to be in Jerusalem again at this point. It seems as though they were making themselves hard to find for Saul. Perhaps they might have even been in some form of hiding at this point from Saul specifically. But Barnabas takes Saul to them. He not only takes Saul to the apostles, but we see he vouches for Saul. If you recall the passage that we read back in Galatians, Paul said that he went to Jerusalem to get acquainted or to get to know Peter. And it was only Peter that he saw of the apostles in that first visit. That's what he said in Galatians. The explanation for that is likely that either Peter, as the head of the spokesman for the apostles, is the representative of all the apostles when Luke says that Saul met with them, or, or quoting Todd Bryant, we know the only apostle Paul had closely, close contact with was Peter because of that passage in Galatians. Perhaps the case for Saul's conversion was made by Barnabas to all the apostles initially, but Peter was the only one that Paul had close contact with while he was there in Jerusalem. But just imagine the courage that this took from Barnabas. 
If Saul had been fake, if, he, if his conversion had not been real, if he had been doing all of this just to infiltrate the church there in Jerusalem, he would have done that. He would have gotten to the core, right? He would have gotten to the, the, the leaders, the apostles. And Barnabas had invited him right in to just do whatever harm he could. But Barnabas had heard Saul's story by this point, and it appears that he knew of the boldness of Saul's preaching in Damascus. And so he takes Saul to the apostles to tell of this story, to tell of this conversion, to stand behind Paul. We don't really know why Barnabas seems to be the only one who knew of this story of Saul in Damascus at this point. It could have been from Saul's personal testimony to Barnabas there in Jerusalem as, as Barnabas perhaps met with him and talked with him. Some commentators suggest it was through relatives he had in the Damascus area who had told him of it, but we just don't know. We know that Barnabas was aware of Saul's conversion story and his subsequent bold witness there in, in Damascus, right? So he went to bat for Saul. He stood behind the greatest enemy the church had known and supported him. Brian when he covered the last passage, he talked about forgiveness and the courage of Ananias and the believers there in Damascus. And here we see an astounding example of courage again and of forgiveness again. Maybe even greater. Look, those in Damascus, they were about to be persecuted by Saul, right? But that persecution had not actually started yet. God intervened before that happened. But these people in Jerusalem, these disciples in Jerusalem, they had actually suffered persecution at the hand of Saul. But these people, instead of holding it against him, and, and instead of being angry with him and, and not forgiving him, despite this great and severe persecution, Barnabas specifically to begin with, they, they forgive, right? They accept Barnabas possibly had had friends or family arrested or even put to death at the hands of Saul. Yet here he is standing hand in hand with this great enemy of the church vouching for his acceptance among the brethren. Luke doesn't give us any more details of that meeting. If this trip to Jerusalem was in fact after the three years that Saul had spent learning directly from Jesus as he mentions here in Galatians, or as he mentioned in Galatians, then it would have been easy to assume that Paul, Saul told the apostles there in that meeting of his time with Jesus and, and how Jesus had, had taught him. But whatever might have been said or done in that meeting, we're told that in the next verse that Saul went in and out among those them in Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. The them here could be a reference to the apostles, but is likely a reference to all the believers there in Jerusalem went in and out among them preaching boldly. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about Saul after his conversion. First, in both Damascus and Jerusalem, the first thing he did was he sought out the company of believers in that place, right? He identified with them, and he did it quickly. Saul seemed to know the importance then of the fellowship among the believers immediately. I'm sure he had seen, even as an enemy, of the church prior to conversion, this companionship, this fellowship. I'm sure that he had seen the love and devotion that each one had had for each other and to Christ despite this persecution which had come on them. Look, there's no place in God's Word for solo Christianity. We see a great example of that with, with Paul immediately here. Second thing, Saul witnessed openly and often to the work and kingship of Jesus and his witness was Christ-centered. His message was not about himself. 
Saul was not the hero of his conversion. Jesus was. And he made sure that everyone knew that. Third, Saul's witness was courageous, right? I mean, Luke speaks of the boldness of his witness and preaching twice in our passage. Saul was not ashamed to preach the gospel of Jesus, despite previously having been the face of the enemy of the church and Jesus. He didn't let that make him shy away from publicly declaring how wrong he had been, right, about Jesus. He wanted people to know the truth. As John Stott summarized Saul's early ministry, it was Christ-centered, driven by the Spirit, courageous, and costly. I would also add that it was supported. Regardless of the initial hesitancy by both Ananias and the disciples in Jerusalem, Saul was taken and cared for here, to the point that he was rescued on two occasions from death by his fellow believers. These characteristics of Saul's conversion and ministry are seen in Jerusalem here in verses 28 and 29. Saul did not return to Jerusalem in in shame, right? Afraid to see the face of the Sanhedrin or his former Jewish brethren who likely championed him as a hero of the faith prior to his conversion. There was no hesitation to join those of the way or to publicly declare his allegiance to Jesus the Christ in the place where the greatest persecution of the church and greatest hatred for the message of Jesus had been to this point. Paul went instead boldly and preached and debated these Hellenistic Jews, we're told. Again, it's almost as if he just came back to Jerusalem to do what Stephen had done, right? So what did these Hellenistic Jews do that he sought to, or that he came in and, and debated with and, and talked with and tried to teach the truth to? Well, they did the same thing they did to Stephen. They, Stephen, they sought to kill him. There seems to be a theme early in Saul's ministry that will probably remain with that will remain with him the rest of it. This theme of, of persecution and, and plots of death and attempts to get rid of Saul. But again, we see Saul gets aid from his fellow believers. And here we see them called brothers, right? Instead of disciples. Luke purposely, I think, makes this important transition in his description of these, of these disciples of Christ, these brothers. Of Saul. Saul was now fully accepted among the followers of Christ there in, in Jerusalem. They were no longer just disciples of Jesus to Saul, but they were also brothers. Again, you, you can't miss the heart of the true believer in these brothers to Saul, of Saul. It could have been very easy for them to have just let Saul's previous persecution destroy their relationship with him. It, it could have been very easy to have done little or nothing to help Saul as his life was on the line here. They could have used all kinds of excuses not to help him. It could have been out of true, real fear. It could have been because of the previous persecution. I mean, you can hear the excuse, right? It's great that Saul now believes, but I'm not going to risk my own safety for him. I mean, after all, if he gets killed, maybe he deserves it for all that he did to us. They don't do that though, right? They helped him. They came to His aid. They were companions. They were brothers. Then we're told that He went to Caesarea, then to Tarsus, and we will not see Paul again until chapter 11 after several years have passed. And then Luke ends this section in verse 31 by giving the status of the church as it spread throughout Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. The gospel was being preached and God was using it in a mighty way and we should see that here. Just as Jesus promised would happen. We see here that the church had peace as they now seemed to be free of this external great persecution they'd had for a time. They had strength as they were being built up. They had encouragement by the work of the the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. 
They had growth and they had godliness as they lived in the fear of the Lord. After heavy persecution, heavy, heavy persecution, God gave a period of reprieve to His people there and they were thriving. God's Word prevailed despite the rejection and persecution we have seen previously and that we see in this passage. Right? Let me mention a couple of things before we come to our conclusion, just as application. First, I mentioned earlier that Damascus was the first of many attempts to put Paul to death because of his preaching Jesus. Satan tried over and over to take the man of God out, used so mightily by God to save souls and grow the church, right? We see that over and over during his ministry. Eventually, Paul was put to death as a martyr, but only when God's purpose for him had finished. Was Paul lucky then? He just, he just happened to get lucky to get out of all these situations? Of course not. Paul suffered. Make no mistake, his life was not easy after conversion. His witness in his life was hard post-conversion. But nothing that Satan did or could do would or could stop Paul from going place to place and preaching the gospel of Jesus until God was finished with him here on earth. In Luke 12, Jesus told His disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. And how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither tool nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. We worry about far too much. We are far too anxious about far too many things. A lot of times, we're far too anxious about our very lives. Make no mistake though, as long as God has a purpose for you here on earth, there is nothing that Satan can do to thwart that. And when His purpose is done, well... You go to heaven. There, there's, no, there's no bad deal in that, right? So take comfort. Take strength in that. Second, we need to be apologists. And I'll, I'll hurry through these. First Peter verse, chapter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We need to be prepared to make a defense for our faith. We cannot do that if we are not having our minds on the Word of God. We are not learning, and we are not doing that on a regular basis. One or two or three hours in church a week is not enough. It's not enough. We need more. We need to be about God's business in His Word at home, not only for our own edification, but in order to be able to give a defense for what we believe. Third, we aren't told, but it would be hard to imagine that the believers here in Jerusalem had not prayed for the conversion of Saul while he persecuted them. Saul's conversion is such a great example of us, of the power of God, right, as he changes the hearts of men and women. 
And we lose sight of, time, of that at times, I think. We know it mentally and theologically, but we don't practically live it at times. I think it's why we struggle to witness it up to others at times. Maybe it's why we even struggle to pray with confidence when we pray for the salvation of our friends or our family or even our enemies. But God gave us the story of Saul in large part to show that His saving power can be meant for anyone and everyone. So let us pray and witness with more faith and more holy expectation in God's wonder-working power. Fourth, and closely connected to my previous point, as Christians, we are to forgive and forget. We have a perfect example of this, both of Barnabas and of the, the disciples in Damascus and Jerusalem. We should not, should not be holding on to any hurt that we have, especially long term, and certainly if a brother or sister has come to us for forgiveness. But even apart from that, we are not to be holding anger and hostility towards others. And if we pray, if we have an enemy that we're praying for and we see that conversion... We should rejoice instead of thinking about their previous life and what they did, even if it was great persecution towards us. Forgive, forget. Last, my sermon title is The Irony of Saul. And I'm sure you saw why as we went through this passage. The conversion of Saul changed him immediately, right? He was practically the opposite, exact opposite of what he was prior to conversion. Exact opposite man. He is a great example of how a born-again believer has been made a new creature, right? Now, while our lives might not be marked with such great contrast prior to conversion, as post-conversion as Saul's was, there still should be a marked contrast between our lives prior to conversion and after conversion. We should not still be the same person we were, especially years down the road or even months down the road. We should be different. We should be new creatures. There should be irony in our lives, right? All the things we stood for and we were in favor of and we wanted prior to our conversion, many of those things should be the exact things that we now oppose and we now stand against because they were sinful and they were unbiblical and they were a rebellion to God and we don't want that any longer. Our lives should be an irony as well. And if they're not if our lives are the same as they were prior to conversion, or they're pretty close, we need to question. We need to question what's going on in our lives. Question our walk. Question our conversion. That's not at all the example we see in Scripture, and certainly not the example we see in Saul. Stand with me.